1: Welcome to First Move, coming to you once again from London and another busy show for you today, filled with both New Year's resolutions and celebratory substitutions. There's no better way to start the year than making a few of those Christmas pudding pounds disappear. The CEO of Gym Giant Planet Fitness is seeing membership at all-time highs thanks to ultra affordable membership plans, it says, that trims weight lines without busting budgets. Chris Rondeau joins us with his take on consumer health in more ways than one, clearly. And from working out gratification to guilt-free temptation. We'll hear from the co-founders of the Win Win Labs. They're an ethical food startup that's aiming to produce cocoa-free chocolate to market. They claim is indistinguishable from the real thing. Better for our health and apparently the climate too. And the treats are even safe for dogs. Crucial for me. Few treats though on Wall Street for now this week. We're on track for another subdued open today. Take a look at that. This comes after Tuesday's 1.5% drop for the NASDAQ. Tesla trouncing, I think, is what tells the tale, falling more than 11% for its seventh daily loss in succession amid reports that it's now cutting back on Chinese production, slowing demand and forced selling fears at play here, of course, too, I think, as well as the continued overhang from Elon Musk's Twitter purchase. Tesla shares, just to give you some context, now down some 70% since January of this year. That's its worst year ever in terms of performance as a public company, though the stock ticking higher. Now, pre-market up around at 2% at last check, mm, now 1.5%. Let's take a look at what's going on in Asia too. Hong Kong rallied after the city's chief executive announced the lifting of most COVID health restrictions. China's moves to reopen its borders in January has lent an overall positive tone to Asian markets over the past week or so. But there's clearly lots of concern now about how freer movement will strain both their health care systems. But what measures other nations now are doing to protect themselves as well. The United States is considering PCR tests for incoming Chinese tourists, according to reports, and Japan, Malaysia and Taiwan putting in place new restrictions as well. As you can probably guess, we begin today's show once again in China. As China eases its zero Covid policy, the number of Covid cases there continues to rise. The outbreak is putting Chinese hospitals and funeral homes under immense pressure and draining resources. CNN's Paula Hancock is following the story from
2: Seoul. As many are celebrating China's decision to ease its COVID border restrictions, some countries are starting to put restrictions in place, anticipating an influx of travellers from China in coming days and weeks. Now, there is an explosion of COVID infections within China and there are concerns that this could begin to cross beyond its borders. The United States, for example, says that it is looking to put in place new COVID measures due to the rising cases in China for travellers coming from mainland China, but also talking about the, quote, lack of transparent data. This information coming to us from US officials, one of those officials saying that a decision could be made soon. Also pointing out that without data, it is very difficult and becoming more so for public health officials to try and identify any potential new variants and also to be able to react quickly to try and reduce the spread of any of those variants. Now, other countries also putting plans in place. Taiwan, for example, has said that in the coming days it will require all travellers from mainland China to test on arrival. A similar situation in Japan. In fact, Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said he is restricting plans to increase the number of flights to and from China because he is concerned about the increase uh, in infections there, saying that it is difficult to grasp the detailed situation. India also putting some restrictions in place. Now this is a significant part of the very abrupt dismantling of China's zero Covid policy. But the lack of data, the lack of numbers of, of infections, hospitalizations and deaths coming out of China is concerning many around the world. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul.
1: Now, given concerns about an explosion of Covid cases across China, we're learning that the United States is considering new restrictions on people travelling from the country Let's get right now to Arlette Signs live in St. Croix, where President Biden is vacationing. Arlette, great to have you with us. Uh, There's no rest, clearly, when this kind of thing's going on around the world. Many nations are concerned now what the explosion in cases in China means for international travel as China reopens. What do we know about what the United States is considering and how quickly they might choose to act?
3: Well, the U.S. is currently considering adding some new travel measures themselves here when it comes to those travelers coming from China. U.S. officials say that that is because of the rise that they've seen in COVID cases in the country, but also what they are calling a lack of transparent data about the situation in the country. Now, these consultations are being made in coordination with public health officials here in the U.S., as well as partners around the world. And one U.S. official told me this morning that uh, they believe a decision on adding possible testing requirements to travelers coming from China could come soon. Now, one thing that officials are really pointing to is the data that they are receiving from China about the COVID cases there. And there are concerns among public health officials that this would uh, cause uh, more difficulty in trying to identify new variants and also find ways to protect people uh, from COVID-19. The World Health Organization just last week expressed concern about the rising cases as well as saying that more information is needed. Now, as Paula noted, some other countries have already taken some steps to try to address these travelers coming from China amid the rising cases. You have Japan that is requiring testing upon arrival. India is also a pri- uh, 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 requiring proof of a negative test upon arrival. Those are steps that are set to co- go into place in the coming days. So the U.S. is evaluating uh, all of the options at the moment, seeing some of the things that these other countries are doing. And they said that they will be making a decision that is based on science and public health. But it's very clear they have been watching the end of this co- zero COVID policy very closely watching this rise in cases uh, and also continuing to press for more data and transparency from China uh, so that the U.S. and other countries around the world can also make plans about uh, things like new variants and other measures they could put in place to protect their people.
1: It makes perfect sense. And as you said, uh, transparency over the data is key. Communication is key. The response, it seems, from China's already that, that nations should be working together. And I just wonder, Arlette, and you can tell me if the answers no, whether there's any sense of, of coordinating between some of these nations, perhaps the United States and Europe, for example, because I think there's also the, the sort of geopolitics that comes into play here and not wanting to be seen perhaps to um, be taking a measure against China that could be seen as aggressive in some way, despite the concerns about Covid. Any sense of, of coordination or at least discussion of action?
3: Yes. Yeah. We we haven't heard yet of specific discussions that the U.S. might be having with European countries, but they have specifically stressed that they are talking to partners around the world consistently about this issue. Oftentimes there has been some coordination uh, in the past when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the travel restrictions, but the U.S. is assessing uh, what the information that they have and what they believe will be best uh, for those traveling into this country specifically. Certainly uh, those types of conversations have been on the table in the past they could be in play right now, but we haven't gotten any specific word of that coordination at this moment.
1: No, we'll continue to watch for that. Alec, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. And what an amazing place you're in. Tough gig. <laughs> all right, later Thank in you. the show, we'll be getting the view of Shazad Kazi, who's the managing director of the China Beige Book. They're the biggest private data collector in China. Fascinating to see what their data says about what all this means. All right. In the meantime, there seems to be no end in sight to the chaos created by the meltdown quote at Southwest Airlines. The airline confirming more than 60 percent of flights for Wednesday are already cancelled. In all, Southwest has cancelled more than 15,700 flights since last Thursday. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says his department will hold Southwest accountable.
4: Their
5: system uh, really has completely melted down and I've made clear that uh, our department will be holding them accountable for their responsibilities to customers, uh, both to get them through this situation and to make sure that this can't happen again. We all understand when you have a major historic storm uh, hitting the system and hitting hubs in every part of the country, we know that that's going to have an effect on the aviation system. But what's really concerning here is that while all of the other parts of the aviation system have been moving toward recovery and getting better each day, it's actually been moving the opposite direction with this airline.
1: Yeah, I was quoting the U.S. Transport Secretary there when I said uh, meltdown, and that's exactly what he called it. Now, there is light at the end of the tunnel after days of delays. Some passengers, at least, have been able to get on flights. Just listen to this.
6: So when we were coming here from Austin, they were saying that, uh, I guess, a lot of flights, they had to change the plane and downsize. I'm not sure what's for, but basically they, um, they said about 30 people wouldn't make the flight. So, how were you so lucky to be able to get on the flight? We checked in early. Honestly, that was—they said the people that checked in early will get on guaranteed. We've been checking the news like every day, and then every hour
3: I'm on my app, just like please be on time, please be on time. And then w- one thing that's concerning me is the gate keeps changing. So I don't want to be at a gate, and then all of a sudden look at my app and it's all the way on the other side. So I'm just hoping God gives us grace to find a gate and finalize it. <laughs>
1: CNN's Rahal Solomon is following the story for us. Rahal, when the U.S. Transport Secretary has to get involved, he's calling it a meltdown and suggesting that a company is unable to locate its own crews, sometimes passengers, never mind baggage. You know, there's a real problem taking place. Is
4: there any end in sight? Well, you know, the way it was described to me, Julia, is that if you have a Southwest ticket between now and the end of the year, you have a one in three chance of making that flight. So, Exactly. I mean, pretty dire prediction there, right? And the reason why is because Southwest has said it has proactively canceled about two-thirds of its operation, not because of the winter storm, but because its system was so scrambled, as you pointed out, not being able to match uh, aircraft with crews, available crews. So they have proactively canceled about two-thirds of their operations to try to sort it out and to try to get systems back in place. So it is becoming clear that, you know, relief, I guess, is in the eye of the beholder, but it is becoming clear that it is not necessarily going to be a quick or easy fix. The CEO for his part, Bob Jordan, saying he's sorry. Take a listen. The tools we use to recover from disruption serve as well 99% of the time, but clearly we need to double down on our already existing plans to upgrade systems for these extreme circumstances so that we never again face what's happening uh, right now. And, Julia, I think the question now becomes, do they do what they say that they will do? Do they upgrade those systems? Because the Southwest Pilots Association has told CNN that these problems have been brewing for months, for quite some time. They say that they've been warning about these issues. They've been having these issues for the past 20 months.
1: Wow. I mean, this, to two— um use a bit of a pun here, is a, is a perfect storm of, of yeah. shocking weather, of challenges more broadly, of Christmas travel, which we know is, was heightened as people try and get over around the country. Um, what kind of investment are we talking about? What kind of impact on, on the business? Because if they've known for at least 20 months, um, there's likely to be old, I'm assuming, mm. IT infrastructure in this company well, that's long needed upgrade.
4: It's a great point. I think that's the big question now, certainly for uh, those of us in the financial journalism you know, industry, those who are not stuck in the airport. The question that we're now asking is, well, how much is this going to cost? Southwest, of course, the largest pure play domestic player here in the U.S. And so how much will it cost to upgrade these uh, scheduling IT systems? To put this in perspective, the pilots associations, the pilots union that I just mentioned, they say that these systems have not been upgraded, Julia, since the 90s. And you'd have to think back. I mean, what technology were we using in the 90s? We were walking around with those portable CD players and the headphones, and I think we were still using floppy disks. So I think that really drives home the point that if that is in fact true, what the pilots union says, these are systems that are in dire need of being upgraded. And perhaps this storm is a, is a catalyst to sort of incentivize the company to uh, sort of heighten those, those plans, escalate those plans or double down, as the CEO has said.
1: Yeah, and the U.S. Transport Secretary is going to be after them, certainly if they, uh, if they don't. Rahul Solomon, thank you very much for that. Okay, let's move on. Pope Francis says his predecessor, Benedict, is very sick, quote, and has asked for prayers for the 95-year-old former pontiff. Joining us now is CNN's Vatican correspondent, Dela Gallagher. Dila, what more do we know about his health?
2: Well, you know, Julia, it was something of a surprise this morning when the Pope made these comments asking for prayers for Pope Benedict and saying he was very sick. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. It was just a few hours ago.
0: I want to ask you all for a special prayer for Pope Emeritus Benedict, who sustains the Church in his silence. He is very sick. We ask the Lord to console and sustain him in this witness of love for the Church to the very end.
2: Amore alla
7: Chiesa fino alla fine.
2: Following that, the Vatican did issue a statement saying that the Pope Emeritus' health had declined in the last few hours. They say due to advanced age, he's 95 years old, they say his doctors are monitoring the situation, and that Pope Francis had gone to visit the Pope Emeritus. That is what we know at the moment, Julia, uh, I will say that if the Vatican has come out publicly with this information it means the situation is pretty serious indeed we're monitoring it for any updates and we will bring those to you when we have them julia
1: delia gallagher thank you so much for that and as you said any further developments we'll bring them straight to our viewers okay straight ahead how to lose pounds without paying pounds or dollars actually in this case the ceo of gym chain planet fitness is up next plus what about just taking plan b and eat more chocolate that's probably my choice to start up which says its cocoa free alternative is better for your weight for workers and perhaps the world too that's all coming up stay with us Welcome back to First Move. and returning to one of our top stories. Beijing is responding to reports that the United States is considering travel restrictions on people arriving from China. In a statement, China's foreign ministry said, we need all parties to work together scientifically against the epidemic to ensure the safe movement of people between countries, maintain the stability of the global industrial chain supply chain and promote the resumption of healthy growth in the world economy. China itself will drop COVID quarantine requirements for arrivals starting from January the 8th. Much to discuss. Shazad Kazi is Managing Director of the China Beach Book, the biggest private data collection network in China. And he joins us now. Fantastic to have you with us and happy holidays. Um, I love talking to you because your data collection is so fascinating for what we know and what we don't know that's uh, taking place in China. But I just feel like it's early to even talk about any form of economic recovery until we have a sense of the data on what's going on with COVID, be it scale of illness, be it vaccines, be it usefulness of, of the vaccines that they've had. We're sort of flying blind.
5: Yeah, that's exactly it, right? Markets are flying completely blind. We have no idea at this point. You know, COVID data coming out of China used to be pretty useless, but now it's all scrapped altogether. We have no idea how bad it is, uh, literally. But of course, there are reports coming out showing us that there's widespread death. Uh, hospitals are starting to get overrun and so on and so forth. Uh, that's one aspect of it. Of course, markets right now, uh, you know, they've been very obsessed with the idea of a reopening in China. Uh, the real question now, of course, is how quickly can this virus be brought into control so that people can actually participate in the economy? So do you get an actual reopening where workers are working and consumers are consuming?
1: It's fascinating, isn't it? You chose to go down the investor route and there is far greater optimism, admittedly, from low levels if we look at the stock market based on what we're seeing in terms of these relaxation of restrictions. But it sounds like what you're saying based on uh, the sort of blow up in Covid cases that we're, we're seeing and anticipating, I think, in the, the coming weeks, that actually there could be a further economic deterioration rather than a pickup, at least in the, in the short term.
5: That's exactly it. I think the data that we're going to get at the end of this month, uh, going into early next year, are going to show some amounts of further economic deterioration. Uh, you know, the reality is that COVID is going to disrupt operations at factories. Uh, you're going to see a lot of continued, quote-unquote, self-quarantining now from, uh, you know, folks who are trying to avoid getting sick. Uh, so I think economic activity uh, is already, by the way, really bad, right? The Chinese economy is struggling by all accounts, whether you look at private numbers like ours for November or you look at other official data that has come out. Uh, So we have a long way to go in terms of digging, you know, the economy trying to dig itself back out of this hole that's in. Um, And so any type of, you know, rebound, real recovery is still months and months away.
1: What about the data that you're collecting as far as Covid itself is concerned and I know you're in a quiet period before releasing your latest data but just in broad terms can you give us a sense of of the scale that we're talking about because there are sort of pretty astonishing numbers I think being thrown around whether that's the extent of Covid cases or even just the transmission rate now that we're seeing.
5: Yeah, you know, I think, Julia, COVID is just running rampant right now. You know, where we are absolutely talking about a wildfire, especially in the major cities where all the focus is. Uh, The next thing I think that we're going to be worrying about is what happens, especially over the upcoming Spring Festival, the Chinese New Year, uh, when we see flare ups happening in the rural parts of the country, in the less developed parts of the country, uh, which, by the way, sometimes happen to be very, very important also for commodities producers, manufacturers. So there's still, again, a a element. Chinese consumption of global commodities and a global supply chain element linked right to it. So, you know, the reality is COVID has not peaked. The peak is ahead of us. The pain and additional bad news is ahead of us right now.
1: So the peak and the pain of COVID... Has not yet been seen. What about the economic downside? Because you always have to to balance the deterioration and the concern about the economy with potential. I think for stimulus coming through. Have we seen the the downside for the for the economic data? Do you think that that you've collected so far, or again, we could see worse?
5: Yeah. Look, I, I think I think it's probably still a little too early to call the bottom. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I. I think, I think, as we said, the economy is likely going to worsen a little bit more. Now, looking out into next year, the upside here is that there is room for stimulus, right? Uh, once you get this COVID situation under control, you potentially have the ability to do uh, a little bit more fiscal stimulus than you did all of this year. There is room for monetary stimulus. Uh, some of the borrowing numbers that we looked at last month were encouraging. They were showing a return uh, to banks and a return, uh, uh, you know, to the credit markets by companies. So those are some positives which we would look to see, you know, uh, getting more traction on as you get into next year. Uh, so again, the The point I think right now is I think you're going to get a better 2023 than 2022. That really isn't the question anymore. It's all about the timing. Uh, And how soon do you see a recovery start to take shape? Um, To me, this is more of a second half 2023 story.
1: What are you watching for then over the next couple of quarters? And I've already seen stories that catch my attention, which is importing of things like Paxlovid from Pfizer, Pfizer. Uh, the import of um, the BioNTech vaccine, at least for foreigners in China, not Chinese citizens. Something like that could be a huge game changer. And of course, it ties into the economics, it ties into the geopolitics of of a kind of decision like that. But do you expect any kind of relaxation on that front? Because that surely would be a game changer in terms of of vaccines and and building up the resilience for Chinese citizens. I think
5: access... Access to vaccinations and therapeutics uh, is going to be absolutely required. You can't just have a situation where folks just keep getting COVID over and over again uh, in China. So that's going to be absolutely necessary. And beyond, so that is going to probably usher in a far greater revival, or recovery on the consumer side of the economy so that people are able to go to theaters, restaurants and travel much more freely than they are right now, even despite of, despite the openings you're getting. The longer-term picture, of course, is what happens. Crucially, with the Chinese property sector, which is in a deep hole, and and trying to resuscitate that is going to take a long time. But you're not going to get growth levels of the past. You're not going to get those booming that booming housing market that you had previously. Um, and finally, the thing that I'm looking out for is, of course, what continues to happen when you get a Chinese recovery at home eventually in 2023, but you get a global economy that is slowing down, because that's going to obviously uh, put pressure on the Chinese manufacturing side, on Chinese the export-led growth, which the country still is very much reliant on.
1: Yeah, and we've already seen companies that are um, trying to shore up their supply chains, the likes of Apple, Tesla, we know have got uh, challenges too, so it's a longer-term story as well. Yeah. Um, Shizekazi, great to chat to you today. Thank you so much and we'll speak soon. Pumps and cheers there at the New York Stock Exchange. Bad boy mowers, industrial mowers, I believe they're ringing the opening bell this morning. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running, therefore, this Wednesday, the third to last trading day of 2022. And the bulls are hoping to get some much needed green on the screen today, but I have to say hopes for a solid year-end Santa Claus rally appear to be slipping away fast as investors focus on the many investment challenges that we'll be seeing likely in the new year. Tesla balls are hoping for a bit of a bounce too after an 11% drop on Tuesday and a stunning 20% tumble over the past five trading sessions. Also, we've talked about it for the last two days, Southwest Airlines still in distress, as are their customers, many of them at least, shares of the world's largest low-cost airline are falling again after a 6% drop on Tuesday. And as we've been reporting, the carrier is confirming that more than 60% of its flights have already been cancelled on Wednesday. In all, Southwest has cancelled more than 15,000 flights since that historic winter storm began battering the United States last week. Currently, that stock down just 2.2%. $33, just above $33 a share there. Now, New Year's Day, it's just around the corner. And with that comes new or old resolutions, perhaps, to do better in the new year. And for many, that means working out more. For the past 30 years, Planet Fitness has offered memberships for just 10 a month. The company is hoping its low price point will keep fitness fanatics coming back in 2023. Planet Fitness says its customer base is strong, literally with more than 16.6 million members. That actually is an all-time high, I believe. The company says despite inflation, it believes it could double the size of its existing member base. Joining us now is Chris Rondeau. He's the CEO of Planet Fitness. Chris, fantastic to have you with us. What does $10 get me? That's an extraordinary monthly rate. I think what does yeah, it no, do get just,
6: yeah it's extremely affordable and you know there's only 20% of the population in the US has a gym membership and, and that's the that's the most worldwide believe it or not which is still you know very little so we look at a $10 price point really gives it full access to so many people that can get off the couch and get fitness to try um, and not break the bank right and uh, we've been 10 bucks a month since the early 90s and uh, don't plan to move it and uh, there's just a lot more work for us to get to be done and to get people off the couch
1: Wow, there's quite a lot in that, actually. So one in five, actually, people in the United States go to a gym or at least have gym membership because there's a difference there between actually having gym membership and attending the gym. Um, Let's talk about that because you do also offer something called a black card, which is, I believe, um, $24.99 a month. What's the difference between that higher price point and and the $10 a month? What does that give you?
6: Yeah, yeah, so both memberships has full access of of your home club, you know, near your house or where you join. And, you know, some of the best equipment money can buy, tons of cardiovascular equipment, circuit training, locker rooms, and so on. Now with the Black Card, you've got additional perks. So we have Black Card spas in our gyms, and what's included in there is hydro massage uh, massage beds, massage chairs like you see in the gym. And if you're a Black Card member, you can use those as much as you want, no no extra charge at all, um, and tanning and so on. And on top of that, what we also offer with the black card is you actually can bring a, a guest with you to work out every day for free. Same guest, different guest, somebody at work, somebody at home, and there's no charge for that. So it's almost a two for one. And on top of that, the other thing it gives you is reciprocity. And now with uh, over 2,300 locations around the world and 2,000 here just in the U.S., you can use any club anywhere for no additional charges. So it's a great benefit. So it's almost, even though it's $24.99, it's actually a better, better value than the 10 you can make a case.
1: Yeah. If you can get somebody to come with you, then it's to your point, it's sort of two for one in in that regard. Okay, now comes Mm -hmm. to the crux, I think, of the business model of gym membership. What proportion of those people that are paying ten dollars each month actually come to the gym?
6: Sure. Yeah. Every month out of those 16 plus million members, about half our members use the store in a 30 day period. And every 30 days, that changes over. It's a different mix of that same 50%. So so membership or workouts are somewhat, somewhat episodic at times where you work out a lot. You're getting ready for an event. You're getting ready for a wedding, let's have you. And then you fall off the wagon a little bit or your kids' soccer games get in the way. But the big beauty of $10 a month memberships is that, you know, you have to take the summer off because of, of things where work gets busy, you can take time off. You're not breaking the bank and it's only $10. So it gives you the availability and accessibility to work out whenever you can and whenever you have time.
1: What's the plan to go from where you are today? And I think post-pandemic people are sort of getting back to the gym. To your point, $10, whether you go to the gym or not, it's two Starbucks a month, arguably. So perhaps people don't (laughs) decide to cancel. They just keep paying it, which is a benefit to your business as well. How do you go from where you are today to doubling that membership? Because that's a push, even with just a fifth of people going to the gym.
6: Yeah, so in the U.S., we've about two thousand stores. Uh, we can ha- we fit, from basic market research, at least four thousand locations just domestically right now. So, so only about halfway there domestically um, here in, in the U.S. So, and on top of that, we're now in uh, four countries. We're in Canada, Mexico, Panama, and Australia. Um, plenty of runway there. We, we just announced we're going to go to New Zealand in twenty twenty three, um, and what we've found is. You know, intimidation is real. The judgment-free zone is what we stand for. We, people can come in, if you've never worked out before, you're not gonna feel intimidated or feel uncomfortable, you're gonna fit right in. 10 bucks a month is accessible and affordable and everybody can have access. In the, the, the five countries we're in here now, we've seen the same thing. People are people and they don't wanna be intimidated. They don't wanna be around a bunch of fit people getting fitter. They wanna be around people like themselves that are just giving this a shot for the first time. And and, and we found that people, the, the model's the same. There's yellow, purple, the judgment-free zone and $10 a month or or thereabouts.
1: Yeah, I like the idea of a judgment-free zone because I think this is really important. Talk to me, and I think we've got the video, of the lunk
6: alarm. (laughs) Sure, sure. So, yeah, we invented that in 98, believe it or not, and and it's kind of our lighthearted way to to keep people behaved. (laughs) That's it right there. (laughs) We have those in all our stores. And and our definition of a lunk alarm or a lunk is one who grunts, drops, weights, and judges others. So it's kind of our lighthearted way to keep people behaved and keep the atmosphere... uh,
1: fun and and (laughs) company. yeah you're like don't be such a (laughs) show-off please now the alarm's going off at some point you've also offered pizza i believe and bagels which some might argue sort of defeats the purpose of a gym but i think to your point it's about building that community is that sort of what you're looking for in a franchisee as well because we you know we should talk about the business as well of this this is about franchisees coming to you and opening up as well which at this point in time wherever you are in the world um it's more challenging the financing's more challenging the prospects more challenging
6: yeah, yeah, pizza nights are kind of our, our way of of everything in moderation, right? And you know, very, very, very few people can really actually eat perfect forever. And an exercise is somewhat, it's a chore in some ways and, and you've got to put a lot into it. And we feel like a little reward once a month is good. So it's our way of building community within the gyms, with our members, with our staff, and, and to break down the barriers. It's not about eating perfect every day and wearing a $200 workout outfit, right? It's about coming in, being good for your heart, good for your mental health, which these days is more important than ever you've seen it on TV. Um, and and exercise is, is helps all of that, right? And it's kind of what we really want to get across. And our franchisees really believe in our culture, which is super important. But based on the judgment-free zone and who we stand for in the membership that we want to uh, get off the couch and give them a shot.
1: Yeah, and for the price of um, ten dollars a month, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting business model. Yeah, Chris, come back and talk Thank to us soon. I want to Thank keep you. a track on uh, your progress. Chris, wonderful CEO you very much. of Planet Fitness. Happy New Year! Thank you.
6: Happy New Year.
1: All right. In today's Connecting Africa, this year's COP27 was a chance for the world to debate the climate crisis. One of the debates to emerge, of course, from that summit is how to follow climate-friendly agendas on a continent that's suffering from energy poverty and still needs to industrialise. The Africa Finance Corporation is engaged in climate-friendly policies and acknowledges that industrialising without fossil fuels still remains a huge challenge.
7: I think we shouldn't ignore climate change but we should also be cognizant of the reality we're in in Africa. Half of the population doesn't have access to power and we export most of the raw materials so the two things that have to happen is providing access to power through base load and base load is usually either hydro or gas so gas is still very important and we have abundance of gas in in Africa Uh, but also industrialization so if you think about uh, climate change. This covers a number of things including carbon emissions renewable power and battery metals. Africa has 30 to 40 percent of all battery metals in the world.
1: The question then comes, can the continent build efficient processing plants for the raw materials that you speak of? Um, because that has been one of the arguments. It's a huge investment, it means that we have to do it in the most efficient manner that we'll be able to plug into international markets
7: definitely it can but it will happen over time the other thing that's very important and this is what we are focused on is that a lot of these products are mined in the middle of nowhere so you need to build the infrastructure to move it from the mine to an industrial zone so you need to we invest in rail we invest in roads so that the product is transported and then we invest in special economic zones so that we upgrade we industri- industrialise and then we also invest in ports so that these projects, the products are exported.
1: How do we scale up and mobilise and catalyze access to electricity?
7: We are a DFI, but we're also a commercial player. Yeah. The key thing is to send the message very clearly through investing in projects, and this is what we've been doing. And the projects could be either climate-friendly or, or renewables, etc., but the key thing is let's look at what resources we have and what can we do with them.
1: Welcome back to First Move. It's that time of the year when some of us at least indulge in some chocolate treats and perhaps choose, at least temporarily, to ignore the health consequences. Well, that British startup says it's offering a healthy alternative to chocolate that looks, smells, and tastes just like the real thing. Using sustainable ingredients like British barley, Win Win Food Labs claims to be the first company to bring cocoa free chocolate to market. And it's guilt free in more ways than just one. Mass produced cocoa is plagued by ethical issues like slave labour and environmental devastation. This London-based company is offering an alternative that's free of dairy, palm oil, caffeine and apparently low in sugar too. And it's even safe for dogs. Joining us now is Dr. Johnny Drain. He's co-founder and chief technology officer of Win Win Food Labs. It sounds great to me, although I haven't tasted it, which is crucial. Just talk to me about the premise of your business and why you chose to tackle chocolate specifically.
8: Hi, Julia. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so we're a company that's making alternative ingredients um, for ingredients that maybe have ethical or sustainability issues. And we decided to start that journey with chocolate. And that's because unbeknownst to many average consumers out there, chocolate hides a lot of very dark secrets. So embedded in the supply chains that bring chocolates from um, the places in the world, in the tropics where where the cocoa pods are grown to the the end um, bars that consumers eat or other applications. Um, There's a lot of deforestation, there's biodiversity loss, there is child labor, there is slave labor. um, And there's also just general lots of inequality um, along that supply chain. And we think there is a better way um, to Um, try to reimagine the future for chocolate. Yeah,
1: it's a great way of saying it, actually. some In some way, future-proofing food, I think. I do remember it was around two decades ago, some of the biggest chocolate makers, um, Nestle, Mars, I think Hershey in the United States as well, signed a protocol that was going to tackle their supply chains and look for um, compromised workers in that supply chain and protect them. Are you saying actually, despite perhaps their best efforts or what they say is their best efforts, it's simply still not good enough?
8: Absolutely. So that the, that protocol was the Harkin Engel protocol yes. um, so about twenty years ago, and since then, you know, it was non-binding. Um, didn't really commit anyone to really do anything. It was a lot of kind of. Um, you know, smoke and mirrors around it. And change since then has been, I would say, slow and slim. And we're still asking the questions, why haven't, um, you know, the situation for these very hardworking cocoa farmers in West Africa, Ghana, Ivory Coast, where about two thirds of all of the world's chocolate comes from, why haven't their conditions changed? Why, Why are we still asking these same questions?
1: Okay, talk to me about the chocolate then. You have to talk to me about taste because I mentioned the barley. You also use carob as well. So it's cocoa free. How are you creating a taste that you say smells like chocolate, tastes like chocolate, the textures like chocolate too? Because I have to say, the little skeptic in me has tried carob chocolate versions before and been sort of really disappointed.
8: Yeah, so first of all, just to say that we're not anti-chocolate. We think there's lots of people doing amazing, very valuable work, trying to make the world of chocolate better. And we're just taking a slightly different approach, saying, can we create that final flavor profile of chocolate using slightly different ingredients? And of course, some of those ingredients could come from the places where cocoa is grown. So providing an alternative um, source of income from people that are kind of in this vice-like grip of, of the chocolate industry. When you make chocolate, basically, there's four key stages. You you grow cocoa beans, you ferment them, you roast them, and then you grind them. And we're basically following that same philosophy, except we're starting with vegetal matter, cereals and legumes like carob and barley that just aren't cocoa beans. And within them, they have similar um, you know, chemical compounds that are found in cocoa. And then using um, that fermentation and that roasting, we're teasing out those same same flavor profiles, flavor compounds that are found in the final flavor profile of a bar of chocolate, which might have several hundred chemical compounds that give it that aroma and that taste that we know and love.
1: Oh, my goodness. I'm just looking at some of the images here. and. Never mind the chocolate. The dogs. The dogs seem to love it, and I think most dog owners know that that chocolate is te- toxic to um, to dogs in particular. So anything that they can eat too is, or safely, is good. No theobromine. I think it's that's what's in it, isn't it? That you've managed to um, you exclude. Um, talk to me about who you want to sell this to, because it's not just about a direct to consumer offering. Though you can tell me when it when we and will it will be available. But this is about perhaps also working with some of the big chocolate makers to get them to provide alternative products. Are you also speaking to them at this stage?
8: Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of those big companies, look, six companies dominate 60% of the global chocolate market. So there's a small number of really big players and they're absolutely interested in what we're doing. And they've come and said to our DMs and, you know, we've chatted to them. Look, for us, we want to have... um, all all the issues with the chocolate industry are deeply systemic. And we know that in order to make the lives of those hardworking farmers in in West Africa, for example, to reduce or mitigate uh, deforestation and, and biodiversity loss, we need to work at very large scale levels. And so we need to work ultimately with those big people who have that power to to move that needle. So, of course, we're interested in working with, with them, in changing their practices and such that in, you know, let's say 15, 20, 30 years, we have um, a global chocolate industry that is working, um, you know, in the interests of the people and the planet in the places where cocoa is grown. And we don't, you know, we don't we love chocolate. We don't ever see a world where there isn't chocolate. We just want to make it better.
1: Yeah, this is such an important point because I think one of the the first questions I had was, what about the farmers that are managing to work ethically? And we've already got products out there where you can track it back to the the cocoa bean and you you hope that actually that is being done in a sustainable way. Um, Cost, relative cost, regulation, production. What are you doing as a company? Are you profitable? Are you raising money? Talk to me about these things, because in the end, you've got to make money to stay in business.
8: Absolutely. So at the minute, we're still very young, about 18 months old. um, And we did three limited edition product releases last year. So we were the very first company in the world to release cacao-free chocolate. Um, We will be launching a a product um, to retail next year in the UK and beyond that, Europe, North America, Southeast Asia. Um, And of course, you know, the price point is, is critically important if we come up with this wonderful product. Um, but it's too expensive. Then, you know, again, we won't have that scale. We won't have that impact that we want. So. We're looking to price this at the kind of mass market chocolate um, price. So if you look anywhere from one pound fifty per hundred grams up to, you know, four, five, six pounds is where it starts to get more premium. But we want to be squarely in the middle of that, and ideally within a few years competing with that cheapest um, mass market chocolate, which is, by the way, the chocolate where most of these problems sort of stem from or are related to.
1: Hopefully, a win-win to use the name of the uh, the company. I look forward to trying it. I'm excited. It looked good. <laughs> but then I'm, yeah, just it's like chocolate. Few, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Johnny Dream, co-founder and chief tech officer of Win Win Food Lives. Great to chat to you. Welcome back to First Move. The most famous New Year's Eve song begins Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot? I'll tell you another thing that always seems to be forgot, and that's New Year's resolutions. We've been discussing them, but that never stops us making them, of course. This year, according to a new US survey, the number one resolution, a perennial favourite, you guessed it, is to exercise more. Of course, Planet Fitness will be happy with that. Number two, to eat healthier. A win win, of course, for our faux chocolate makers. We did well on the show today. A win win. High inflation, a growing New Year's fixation. 39% of people intend to save more money. 20% say they'll unplug from social media a bit more too. I wish that one were higher. And last but not least, the overwhelming majority of those polled vow to spend more time with us here on First Move in the year ahead. OK, I made that one up, but that's a great resolution. We believe it would make for a more delightful and sparkly 2023. And our resolution is to be with you every step of the way. Now, as the countdown to the new year begins, the New Year's Eve ball in Times Square is getting a sparkly makeover. Almost 200 new Waterford crystal triangles have been added to the ball. Each one of those is cut by hand. And this year's theme is cut on both sides of the panes.
8: Each and every year a brand new theme a brand new cut pattern and this is actually one of the triangles here from this ball behind me so I can't drop this because it's got to go up right here and you can see these intertwining beautiful love hearts on this cut on both sides designed by Irish craftsmen and this is what's really special about this and this is part of this brand new theme greatest gift the gift of love.
1: Ah, go Ireland. And for the first time since before the pandemic, revellers in Times Square at least can ring in the new year with no COVID restrictions. Whatever celebrations you're planning, I wish them to be bright and sparkly. And you can celebrate the new year this weekend with CNN International 2 will feature special coverage from across Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America and the United States and even the metaverse as the world welcomes 2023 with New Year's Eve Live. Starting in Asia, New Year's Eve Live will follow the sunset as celebrations peak in major cities around the globe beginning at midnight in Sydney. That's 9pm Saturday in Hong Kong, 8am Eastern Time. Do not miss CNN's celebrations. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at G Chesley CNN. Connect the World is up next, and I'll be back tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness